Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, November 26th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. And now, Pastor Aaron Stenberg. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. April 29th. 2011 seemed like a day out of a fairy tale, for it was the wedding of Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, and Catherine Middleton. The attention of tens of millions of people from around the world was captured. In the United States, 62 million people watched some part of the coverage on TV. 72 million people tuned in to YouTube to watch some of the live streaming. And over a million people lined the streets between Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey to catch just a glimpse of the royal couple. So I was traveling around Europe during that time, and I ended up in England shortly after the event. And the amount of merchandise and memorabilia that surrounded this royal wedding was just staggering. Stores were filled with with magnets and and mugs and t-shirts and postcards. And when I returned home, the magazines and the news was all about the details of the royal wedding and the royal family. And now, six years later, my news feed is filled up again with up-to-the-minute details about Princess Kate's newest baby bump. Maybe it's the influence of Disney and Happily Ever Afters, but there's this fascination that we seem to have uh, with the British monarchy. Is it the power they wield, the, the very different lives that they lead, or how foreign a concept it is to us. It's a little bit ironic, for we fought our American Revolution in part to get out from under the rule of a king. We had a desire for self-governance, for for greater freedom, freedom of, of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, no longer to be controlled by a monarch or a dictator as the head of our society, but a government by the people and, and for the people. And yet, like the Israelites of old, we are intrigued by the earthly kings of other nations. And we claim for ourselves a king of kings and a lord of lords. In our Christian calendar, this Sunday is known as Christ the King Sunday. And it's the newest day in our liturgical calendar, and it focuses on celebrating the authority of Christ. And it's the final Sunday in our Christian year. Our new year begins next week on the first Sunday of Advent, a time where we take four Sundays to prepare for and to celebrate the coming of Jesus. But today is Christ the King Sunday. It was a day that was added back in 1925, partly to honor the Mexican church at that time. 
Back in 1925, the world was becoming more secular, just, just like today. And the government in Mexico was demanding that ultimate allegiance and loyalty was only due them. But the church remained faithful. They held public parades throughout the land. They, they walked through the streets, even though there was pushback from the government. But they would walk through the streets together, proclaiming Cristo Rey, Christ is King. So each year, on the last Sunday of our Christian year, we raise our voices to come alongside those who have been persecuted for their faith in all times and places, and to proclaim that Christ is our King. Now, it's not a declaration to, to separate us over and beyond and above other groups. It's not a, an assertion of, of force or, or power over others. But it's a recognition of the kingship and the kingdom that Jesus spoke of that was recorded in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, this image of the kingdom of God is one of his main images. And it's not a place on earth or in the heavens, but it's a term that points to God's active role and God's authority over all creation. Just as God's love cannot be limited to a particular place or a particular time, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven isn't a place so much as it is an action. It is God's saving action throughout all of history, from creation to eschaton, or end times. And as we heard in our passage this morning, uh, we, we see Jesus' final teachings in Matthew that draws our attention to the end days. He draws our attention from our preoccupation with today to a broader picture, reminding us that Jesus will come again to judge, to reconcile, to make new. And just before our text this morning, we actually have two other parables that help teach us about the end times and focus on the importance of always being ready, always being prepared. We find the parable of the wise and the foolish bridesmaids. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. There were, there were ten bridesmaids. Five of them bought oil for their lamps and five of them did not. And the bridegroom was late. And so they all fell asleep. And at midnight, when he finally arrived, they got up and they trimmed their lamps. And the ones with oil went in the door to the wedding banquet. And the ones without had to go and find more oil. And when they arrived, the door was shut. The lesson being, you do not know the day or the time, but always be ready. The final parable is of the men and their investment capital, sometimes also known as the parable of the talents. And three men are given different amounts of money based on their abilities. And two of the men use their money in different ways, but when the master returns, they are able to give back more than what he originally entrusted to them. But the third buried his talent in the ground, and when the master returned, only gave back what was initially entrusted to him. It's a parable stressing uh, the importance of responding to what God has given to each and every one of us. We each have tasks in our lives. We each have abilities. We each have different gifts. 
And there is a warning here for those who bury their gifts out of fear or apathy or just indifference. And so Jesus' teaching then ends with the shepherd king dividing the flock, the judgment of the nations, and found only in Matthew. It's the only scene in the New Testament with any details about the last judgment. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. The Son of Man, the Shepherd King, all of the nations are gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In first century Palestine, shepherds often had mixed flocks, and at night they would separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep enjoyed the open air of the pasture while the goats had to be protected from the cold. And sheep in the first century had a higher commercial value than the goats. So this story presumes a higher importance on the sheep than the goats. But as the shepherd, the son of man, is now separating the sheep who are placed at his right hand from the goats who are at his left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, You that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the very beginning. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And then the righteous answer him, Lord, we don't remember doing any of those things. When did we do that? And he replied, when you did it to one of the least of these members of my family. You did it to me. And then he turns to the goats at his left, and he says, You that are accursed, depart from me to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You didn't feed me when I was hungry or give me a drink when I was thirsty. You didn't welcome me when I was a stranger or visit me when I was sick or in prison. And again, they are surprised, and they ask, Lord, when was it we did not do these things for you? And the king says, when you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. To be perfectly honest, this is one of the passages of scripture that troubles me a little tiny bit. Eternal punishment, accursed ones, eternal fire is some pretty strong language. And the only passage, it's the only passage with details about the final judgment. And so it comes as a bit of a surprise. For it doesn't mention anything about the importance of what we believe. There is no confession of Jesus as Lord, no repentance or forgiveness of sins or grace or any of it. But it is straightforward in its own way. According to this text, what is the criteria for salvation? Did you care for others? That's it. Did you live with compassion? And that makes it all the more challenging. Every day I pass by those on the street who are asking for money or for help, and I realize that I cannot help them all. There is a prison not too far from where I live, and I have not gone there. So my second job out of high school, I worked... Uh, mall security. It was a fun job. Uh, And we were located by a pretty large bus depot. 
And one night, as I was about to head home, I had the late shift, there was a woman who approached me in this near-empty parking lot, asking for help for a place to stay for the night. And so I drove her to the nearby city uh, to put her up for the night, something my parents weren't too thrilled about when they heard about it later. But as we approach a relatively inexpensive motel, she tells me, oh, I've stayed there before, and it was horrible. I can't stay there again. So I keep driving. After another option, which she also turns down, I finally say to her, you know, I would love to help you, but it has to be one of these because I really just, I can't afford anything else. And so we finally found a place for the night for her. But by the end of the experience, let's just say that warm and fuzzy feeling when you get, when you're able to help others, I wasn't feeling that. So what was Matthew's point in retelling these teachings of Jesus? If I hadn't helped this particular woman at this particular time, does that mean I'm a goat? Because I helped her, does that mean I'm a sheep? All these other times when I'm not able to help, you know, is there some kind of cosmic tally kept? While Matthew is indeed drawing our attention uh, to the end days, he's drawing our attention to the larger picture. Instead of a step-by-step manual for us, Matthew's focus is pastoral care of the community. Every year, I visit the doctor for no clear apparent reason. I schedule an appointment. I struggle to find a parking space. I sit with everyone in the waiting room, and I have my physical examination to determine my wellness level. They may draw blood, run some tests, take my temperature or my blood pressure. And if my numbers are off, there are steps that I can take to improve my wellness, like I can exercise more, park further away when I go to the store, or I can exchange veggies uh, rather than donuts. It's a practice that can save my life, and insurance companies think it's such a great idea that they cover the cost of these wellness exams. So for all the dramatic language that Matthew is using in describing this last judgment, His intention is a wellness check for us. It's not to guilt us, to condemn us, or scare us, but to give us a snapshot to our overall health, to show us development and growth, to help lead to new habits or new ways of life. Just as our doctor wants us to flourish, so does our creator, our shepherd, and our king. In her article, Lindsay Armstrong uh, points out that these final teachings in Matthew's gospel all have the same point. She says that it is a call to do right at all times. According to chapter 24, growing antagonism and cooling love are among the most dangerous cancers facing the followers of Christ. Distancing ourselves from others allowing apathy to grow in us like a tumor, expecting that our actions have no real consequences or relying too much on past love and care for others. All of these are critical concerns. 
And so this image of the Son of Man one day separating the sheep from the goats is kind of a diagnostic tool designed to inspire faithfulness, to root out self-centered living, and to help each of us measure where we are as we grow in our likeness of Christ. And it reminds me of a story that Tony Campolo tells. And some of you may have heard this story at our SOAK experience uh, this past month, but it applies so closely uh, to our text today, uh, it's worth repeating. Campolo begins by saying, One day about the noon hour, I was walking down Chestnut Street in downtown Philadelphia when I noticed a bum walking toward me. He was covered in dirt and soot from head to toe. There was filthy stuff just caked on his skin. But the most noticeable thing about him was his beard. It hung down to almost his waist and it had rotted food stuck in it. And this man was holding a McDonald's coffee, and the lip of the cup was already uh, smudged from his dirty mouth. And as he staggered towards me, he seemed to be staring into this cup of coffee. And then suddenly he looks up and he yells, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I have to admit, I really didn't. But I knew the right thing to do was to accept his generosity. So I said, Sure, I'll take a sip. And as I hand the cup back to him, I say, you're pretty generous, are you? Aren't you giving away some of your coffee? What inspired you to be so generous today? And the old derelict looked straight into my eyes and said, well, the coffee was especially delicious today. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. And I thought to myself, oh, man. He is really setting me up. He is going to ask for $5 or more. And so I asked him, I suppose there is something I can do for you in return, isn't there? And the bum answered, yeah, you can give me a hug. To tell you the truth, I was hoping to get away with And he puts his arms around me, and I put my arms around him, and then suddenly I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. People were passing us on the sidewalk. They were were staring at me, and there I was, dressed real nice, hugging this dirty, filthy bum, and I was embarrassed, and I didn't know what else to do. But then, little by little, my embarrassment changed to awe and reverence. I heard a voice echoing through the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was the bum on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For if you did it to one of the least of these You did it unto me. The righteous were surprised that they had cared for the king of creation. There wasn't an expectation on their part for what they had done. It wasn't calculated. It wasn't planned. They had simply joined God's kingdom plan of self-giving, of love that bubbles up from within, a fountain of living water that pours over a parched and a thirsty world. 
Salvation is not something we achieve. It is not something that we work for. It's something that we joyfully discover, sometimes when we least expect it.